Welcome back, Cal and listeners. This is Methodical Millions, where you can better your future and better yourself. Cal, let's welcome another awesome guest today. Everyone listening, please welcome Jennifer Stout, founder and CEO of Motivate You. Jen, how are you today? Thanks for joining us. Good. Thanks for having me. I want to start off with a question. What gets you excited about life? Oh, you started out easy, huh? <laughs> That's a hard one. Always, always. Um, I don't know. I say I don't know because most of the things that I find exciting, I've been hiding out from since, you know, March 2020, you know, like interacting with other people and that kind of thing. So aside from that, I enjoy time outside. I don't know if it excites me. It grounds me. But yeah, it's, it's a little tough lately. How have you been coping? Has your whole world gone upside down? And do you have a favorite outdoor sport or activity? Um, so I just work all the time now. <laughs> I figure I'm not missing anything anyway. So it's a good time to like buckle down. And I am lucky enough, though, that I can see the ocean from the second and third floor of my house. So that's usually what I do is just walk across the street and go to the beach because at least there there's like good ventilation. It's like the side beach from where all the tourists go. So even in the summer, when it got busy, distancing was not a problem. It never gets like packed. And then sometimes I'll just walk up and down the street. I actually really like hiking and uh, mountain climbing, but there's no mountains down here. <laughs> and I say you can't hike if it's flat. So it's to me, it's just walking. But um, I grew up in northern New Jersey, and there's a lot of uh, mountains there to climb, which is fun. And I've done some rock climbing in, in Australia and other places. But yeah, I usually try to figure out like, what can you do with like out having to bring along stuff. But I also do like kayaking and, and things like that. If I go someplace where somebody has, you know, boats or sailboats, I like sailing too. But um, I don't own any of that type of thing but i do like jumping in whenever other people have equipment that's an awesome resume i've done a bit of hiking quote unquote myself and in our area they've got some small trails one's called dundas peak it's a a mix of trails and waterfalls yeah waterfalls are awesome there's a lot by the delaware water gap which is probably like maybe 45 minutes or an hour from where i grew up because it's to the west and i grew up close to new york city but I went to Bucknell for undergrad, so I had to drive that way all the time to get to college. And, of course, there's always traffic because you'd go Route 80 and part of it, there's just a couple lanes. So more than once, I just stopped because when you first get on the trails there, you can actually hit, like, the first waterfall in, like, 15 minutes. And it's, like, a legit size, probably, like, five, six-story waterfall, which is pretty good when you're just entering a park. So, yeah, those are, those are awesome. That's definitely, I would definitely say that's hiking. There's ever, that's about 30 minutes from where I live now that you're not allowed to drive. It's like the last part of uh, Virginia that has a beach that you can't put cars on or, or build on and it's completely public. And because again, it's flat, you bike to the end and then you set up your uh, tent because you are allowed to actually camp on the beach. Um, but I decided to, to walk the 13 miles <laughs> because it was like when I had first moved here and I was missing hiking so much. <laughs> And it was just not a great idea because there's not a lot of shade for like the first half. It's just like open trail with, you know, intense sun. But it was still fun. When I finally got there, I found a tree to climb because I needed to like still climb. And then I found like a one of those geo boxes by accident. So it was kind of funny. That's awesome. And what is a geo box? Actually, I don't think I've ever heard the term myself. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm forgetting what the actual term is. So I made that up. But it's like uh, people put like coordinates and there's apps you can use to try to find like little things that people leave out in different boxes. It's usually like in a box. And then you're supposed to take something out and then put something back in. But there's like the apps that exist to help you locate them based on the coordinates. And I wasn't using an app. I just was climbing a tree and happened to find this box that was like stuck in this hole in the tree. So I thought that was cool because I didn't know what it was either. And then I was like, what is this? And then I found a little note inside and I looked it up later. No way. Is that a company that does these boxes or is it just like a common ubiquitous thing? And do you leave like camping gear or food, like tools or something? Anything. Pretty sure somebody just started it like as a side project. I'm pretty sure there's also more than one, but this one had like really random stuff in it. And I didn't feel like I had anything to leave. So I didn't take anything because first of all, I walked in, right? So I had a backpack out everything too. So I didn't bring any like trinkets, but there was like little toys and stuff in there. Like there was like a Pokemon hard plastic figurine, I remember. And then there was like a baseball card or something, really random stuff. I, I, it was probably like seven years ago. So I don't remember anything else except like, I imagine like when you go to the grocery, I don't know if it's like this where you guys are, but in some grocery stores, they'll sometimes be like those vending machine type things where you put a quarter in or probably it's like 75 cents now and you turn it around and you get some random plastic toy, you know, junk, but like little kids like it on their way out the store. So they ask their parents for coins. It was that kind of thing. Like, you know, nothing useful, but it would be, it would make sense if somebody actually put useful stuff, right? Like, you know, you might, you probably shouldn't put a lighter, even if you have it locked, like something just sounds wrong about that to me in a tree. But um, yeah, I definitely think there's maybe fire starter or something. I don't know. Maybe that's a bad idea too. I don't know. What would you put in it? What do you think you'd put in the box if it was a useful camping box? I guess the easy answer is I'm like a Swiss army knife. Um, I'd probably, I'm just trying to think like, you know, everyone's got Twitter and social media, but this is actually a unique way to connect people who've never met each other and uh, kind of share the experience of life. So I think I would try and put something more unique. So, I mean, the, the obvious analogy is something like a time capsule where people bury in the yard for future generations. But yeah, what about the people you're never going to meet in life? It's a, actually a fantastic question. So um, I'm going to ponder that. Cal, what are you putting in there? No idea. But to be honest, it's... Um, it's a racing know, like, helmet. Let's be honest. Put a racing <laughs> helmet in there. I'm not sure how useful it's going to be for others, though. So that's the thing is... The box you know, is like it, size of like a half of a tissue box, by the way. It was really small. <laughs> It, it sounds like a, it reminds me kind of of uh, the take a pen and leave a penny thing. You know, when you go to a convenience store, similar idea, I think, where you might leave something that's not really valuable to you or not use for you anymore, but maybe someone else might like it or, you know, use it for some reason. Yeah, I will definitely have to look up what it what it's called and I'll send it to you guys on Twitter. But I think it was just the fact that I had never heard of it either before. And I found this box. It, it reminded me of like childhood. It was, it was so magical. Like, oh, my God, I found this box in a hole in, in the tree that I climbed up so that I could see sunset over the other trees. Like, you know, like, what are the odds of that? So it was definitely kind of cool, even though the stuff was kind of silly inside. I mean, you can put in things like, I guess that's the question is, do you tend to bring your phone on things like this? I've heard of like the light phone where you don't have, you know, all the smart internet access, but you could do something like QR based or something like that, that will lead a map to the area or kind of virtualize it. I don't know. I guess for foreign travelers, right? Explain some history about it. Yeah, it's big enough that I'm pretty sure there are ones that have purposes too, aside from trinkets. 
I honestly don't even know if there was much reception there because by the time I got in there and everything, my phone was was dead anyway. But um, I can imagine maybe that people could like so when I when I grew up driving, we actually had maps. MapQuest came out like a couple of years after I started driving, but that was terrible because you're driving and like reading instructions. But before that, we actually had like legit maps. And um, well, first of all, you just ask somebody how to get somewhere and that's how you would go. But if you got lost, you would literally like roll out a map. So that be like you might have to like maybe mark some coordinates and then like bring a map into a park like a state park like that to find some of the stuff. That way, if you do lose reception, you can maybe still find the treasures. But I do think it like using a phone entirely kind of like kills the whole thing. It tells you exactly where it is. Like you're getting closer, getting closer. I feel like that's not as much fun. Yeah, totally. The analogy is video games. So you have like checkpoints and you have little like not obstacles, but things to do. And um, I know if you ever play like Grand Theft Auto or something, those kind of open world games, they have hidden. They're literally called hidden packages where you can supposed to kind of find a bunch of them. I think like 100 as you explore. And I guess the idea is to kind of make sure you go everywhere, not just, you know, on the predetermined route. But my last physical map venture was probably... You know, I'm like in my early late teens in Europe and we did a road trip. So we went through a bunch of countries and I remember we basically got lost in Germany trying to get back to Amsterdam, which is a cool story. And we stopped at a gas station and the guy actually drew a map for us. And that's when people actually, you know, had an encyclopedia of knowledge in their heads. And now it's just deferred to the smartphone. And I'm I'm definitely guilty of that. My day to day tasks I deal with, but I try not to remember things if I don't have to. Yeah, it's tough because when I was in uh, college, I drove to visit one of my friends over the summer and I'd never been to her house before. And at some point I just lost reception. Uh, now, this is when I was using like the map written directions, but they weren't making sense to me at some point. Like it, there was either construction or something and it d- didn't match up. So I went to call her and then I was like, I have no cell phone reception. And this is like free texting even. So I couldn't just text her and then hope it would pop back in when I got reception. So I just had to like keep driving until I found reception, which was even more out of my way. But, you know, at that point, it would have been much better if I had, you know, like a map ready or I had like another fallback. And it made me realize like how dangerous almost it could be if you're super dependent on on these things. You know, um, I'm sure knowing me, I'd have that much gas left, you know, after I'd been driving for five hours and you know, and then like at some point you can't even charge your phone. <laughs> like there, there's like a limit to like how much electronic stuff can get you around. At some point you have to like figure things out. So uh, I, the one thing I don't like is like I, when I was in grammar school, we used to use pay phones and I know they've taken a lot of them down and they're like, oh, people don't use them anymore. But something feels like safe to me about them still having them around occasionally, like in some places, because especially rural places that don't get good connection. It's like sometimes you just need a landline, like you really do. And it's good for emergencies, I think, to have them around still. Yeah, I'd almost want to make them free because I don't carry coins anymore. I don't know about you, but or at least modernize them to like the Apple Pay, tap to pay kind of technology. And I guess I'm kind oh, of wondering. You just came up with a startup. That's a startup right there. Yeah, of course. I love I love but, brainstorming. But if your phone hasn't died, see, here's the like. So oh, it has like to be debit that your card. phone hasn't died, but you don't have reception. We we have tap to pay on debit cards in Canada. I don't know. I think that ah. was like the, the running joke that the U.S. has still signatures everywhere. Um, we do but, have the tap ones, but everywhere you go, they'll be like, oh, it's not working. And you just slide it. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the pitch for Samsung. They had that magnetic stripe mimicking technology. So you can use it at places where they only have swipe two. So I'm sure someone can invent it if they, they want to see that badly enough. So speaking of like the heat waves and the, you know, walking a really long distance, you hear of these stories of like best practices when hiking, which is like people are either overprepared or underprepared. So did you ever feel a sense of danger? Because you seem very exploratory and kind of pushing your limits, which I like. But yeah, what is, no, I you know, had getting into trouble look like? <laughs> yeah, so I went with a friend and this was in college. So it was Pennsylvania and Bucknell's like in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. So it's very rural. And so we went to a pretty, I'm pretty sure it was like 10, 15 minutes away where we started in the woods, but we were just going for like an hour max, you know, 30 minutes, whatever. So we had one water bottle between the two of us. We didn't bring any food and we just started wandering around, you know, like going down the path. And then we got into like a, a discussion and we stopped, I think, paying attention at some point, of course, like we were talking about like, like what would happen if things, you know, like scenarios we lost track of the trail that we were on. I could tell you these, this wasn't like a well-marked trail anyway. It was just that we thought it was going to be like a loop. Uh, since then, I've always made sure I have like a trail map, like a physical or a phone one, which again, the phone one's a little dangerous. But anyway, so we just kept walking. I don't think we realized we ran out of water that we were in trouble. It probably been like two or three hours at that point. Um, so my friend wanted to go in one way and I wanted to go another way. Now, I have this really weird sense of direction. I can't quite explain it. I don't know where it comes from. But even if I haven't been paying attention to where I am, I can tell people how to get unlost. It's happened on road trips and stuff, too, with people. Maybe it's because when I was little, my grandma used to play this game with me. She would be like, try to get me lost when she was driving. We'd drive around back streets, and somehow we'd always go back home. And she, <laughs> and I thought she was playing a joke on me, but maybe part, partly I was uh, figuring out how to like track directions. I don't know. But Anyway, I was determined to want go one way and he was determined to go another way. And I just said, fine, we'll go your way. Until we ended up at the very top of a mountain and there was like those big power lines. And then we could see the highway, like Route 80, which we didn't know it was Route 80 then. But so many crossed down, started getting dark. It ended like by the end of it, we had been in there for 13 hours with no water or food. But as it was getting dark and the, like there's bears there and stuff. I was like, okay, I don't care what you say. We're going the way I want to go. Cause I'm like, I was done at that point. Cause I was like, either that, or we have like 45 minutes left before we have to make shelter because we're going to be like sitting ducks here. So at that point it was still like pretty much dark though. We probably should have actually stopped then technically because by the time 45 minutes was over, it was like completely pitch black. But anyway, we were going downhill at that point. And I was like having a hard time not sliding down the hill because I kept losing my footing because I was so tired. We ended up popping out of the park in a completely different parking lot. And then when we finally made it back and like looked at a computer, it turned out we had actually crossed over Route 80 and we went into a different state park and then came back out into the state park we were in. So we had traveled like 20 miles and we were hustling at the end because I was like so panicked like when we got to the top of this mountain um so yeah that was a terrible 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 thing you know we had like again we had nothing with us and um we weren't planning to to go in there so i don't know what to say about that except that like it's it's hard not to get caught up in conversations right so like how do you prepare for that i i guess you just make sure you always have like a trail map with you somewhere that way if you do get lost or if it's not a marked trail with like the colored paint 
then you can at least like try to find some other things. Like if you hit like a one of those points where another trail intersects, you could try to match it back to the trail. Or maybe don't go on meandering walks to places you haven't been before. Like maybe save those for trails you're familiar with. And always bring at least one water bottle each. <laughs> I felt uneasy just listening to this story. Like I hope they made it out okay. Obviously everything ended up fine, but that was that was scary I, for sure. Honest, I was that I was very scared. When I was younger, me and my best friend got lost in the woods, but we actually weren't lost, but the police were called because our families thought we were lost. And there was like a second again too where my friend was like, this was in fourth grade, like I don't know where we are, but then I got us back. And so we were, we just maybe went too far in. It took us a little bit longer to get back, but there was no panic at that point. I pretty much was sure we were going to get eaten by a bear when, when this other incident happened. Like I was honestly scared. Yeah. I think you've answered it. I'm going to put 50 trail maps in the box. That's <laughs> what I'm going to do. It makes a lot of sense. Cause I know even the one I did, I was with my girlfriend, we were going down a trail and I'm the, you know, I was the explorer who kept pushing to go on like further instead of like the boring paved circle they did. Um, and they have these smaller and smaller trails. And I did use Google Maps to kind of try and get like a general sense. And we had this huge like ambition to go down the mountain and then into the city. And the problem was like you are in cliff sides surrounded by trees. So it's not really clear. And the geolocation around that area was tens of feet. So it was terrible because when I thought, you know, I knew where I was going, it kind of really, really didn't make sense. And then the the crazy part was, you know, she was freaking out saying like, well, hey, we're lost. And then you saw someone on like a mountain bike come past us. I'm like, oh, no, it's fine. This is like the city. You know, there's a real person. So we kind of kept going and going and we got to the edge of one of the main waterfalls and, you know, uh, Right before you kind of look down, there was a small passage. It wasn't like heavy moving water. It was almost standing still. But I was like, okay, let's get wet. Now we're going to climb up. And I was just really like into it. But because I saw like a lookout where I thought we had started and I didn't even know what I was thinking. But eventually she was like, okay, we got to go back. So she did the angry walk and didn't talk to me for a long time. But I, what I realized was she didn't have the right shoes. So, you know, she was worried about slipping, falling, whereas mine were a little bit more, I guess normal hers were almost like just flats so i don't do enough of it i'm I'm kind of wondering now how many people miss out on i guess you have to like it but it is it innate you think do you think people are born explorers maybe only some of us but there's something really you know therapeutic about aimlessly exploring or just walking around i did you know i did new york city once where i just walked for a day and wanted to explore so i mean what are your thoughts on that jen is it a lost art you know exploring yeah, I definitely think there are some people who like to go off trail. Like, I I definitely love going off trail, too. Like, I like fording the rivers, like, you know, you're saying, like, going through it. But even those, like, they usually have some way to see that, like, some, like you said, somebody else went this way, even if it hasn't been, like, you know, for years. You can see it's kind of, like, worn down. I think the biggest problem with this one incident was, like, we hadn't seen anybody since, like, the first 45 minutes. We just weren't prepared to go on a hike so we had nothing with us i think you can get pretty far if you have stuff with you or and me and my friend when we were younger we would just go back out into the woods behind my house there were no trails at all but yeah i think that I, i'm also like the analogy to not outdoors is is that if i meet somebody new the first couple of times i do something with them i just want to do whatever they want to do and people always think that's really weird but i love getting immersed in somebody else's world it's, it's quite fascinating to me that 
even within like the same city or even like a next door neighbor could live their life so entirely different than mine. And so I like just kind of following people around with what they do. So like, hey, if you already have plans, if you're doing this, just bring me like, I just want to see how you live, like however weird that is. It's it's mind blowing. And it's it's very, very fascinating to me. Um, when I went to Australia, I lived with some people like out in the outback and they had like an alpaca farm. And uh, I studied abroad there and it was like this extra thing you could do. They're like, you don't know who we'll send you to. We're just going to send you for a week to some family that's like, you know, okay with having people come stay with them. And you just kind of like do whatever they do. And I was like, that sounds awesome. I can't wait. And I found out later only like, I think one out of like 20 or less of us like signed up to do that part. And, uh, but to me, that's just, just amazing. Like if the more people you meet and the more places you go, I've been to over 30 countries. So I really do like traveling. It sounds like you both do as well. I think then it's hard not to want to keep exploring, whether that's outside or in a city or with people. Yeah, I personally agree. I guess since I was a kid, I was always curious about everything in life. You name it. I used to ask a ton of questions about every single thing and then questions about those questions. And I think this translated a lot into my in adulthood, where whether it comes to just enjoying my time or just wondering, you know, what's my purpose here or what can I do from here or what's my potential? And it does translate into things that I do day to day, including this podcast with John. And, you know, we, we meet new people and talk to new people like yourself and have exciting things to share. And I think that that does translate to why most people don't do it is because most people are comfortable with the norm, with what's familiar, with the routine aspect of things where people shine is when they get out of their comfort zone and try to do new things and explore new things and find things that are exciting that they never knew of. So I, I completely agree with that. Yeah, I don't think it's so much that people want or don't want to. Everyone is really capable of both, I would say. So I think it's just sometimes, Jen, like you're saying, you like to hear people's stories. And I think it's because part of discovering and going on journeys in life is meeting new people and finding people you resonate with. And that's how you run into accidental friends for life and people that you would really not even just, there's no preconceived notion of like, you know, someone you meet, you just start talking and click and, you know, start to kind of vibe and go into crazy conversations, right? Sometimes really philosophical or interesting and exciting. And I think that's how the future is built. I think that's how, you know, life is built. So I'm definitely a big fan of that too. Um, so Jen, after all this hiking, what brings you to the Twitter sphere? What are you working on? And how we found you was, I think I responded to a, a thread. I was like, hey, everyone, come on the show. So thanks so much for joining us. And what are you working on right now? Yeah, I just, I want to touch on Cal's point, if you don't mind. Um, I think there are some people who are okay with the routine and some people who aren't. At all. Like everything's a continuum, right? I get very depressed if I get caught in a routine. There's a quote from like a punk band or maybe a pop punk band, but it's a uh, caught in the safety of routine. I lose myself again. I can't remember the rest of the lyrics exactly, but it's not a good losing of the self. It's like, uh, it's like that depression feeling that like what the loss of like, what does it say V or whatever in French for life, the zest for life. Um, so I got onto Twitter to try to get more media presence for my startup. 
prior to starting this company, I spent very little time on social media. I don't think I really saw much positivity coming out of it. I think especially when like it started getting like very political on some of the channels. And so I just sort of stopped using it. And then when I started this company, I any place I had a handle on, which was like Facebook came out when I was 20. So I had an account. So I made my Facebook business account, which is pretty much the only reason I went on then. And then I made a LinkedIn, which I had, you know, made my LinkedIn account when I graduated and then only updated it when my resume changed. I made a what account there for the business. And then, uh, you know, like a medium blog. And then people kept saying, like, I should also get on Twitter and Instagram. I had started an account on Instagram like 15 years ago. And I was one of those weird people that read the fine print and found out they could manipulate your photos and use them for advertising without your permission and make money off of it, blah, blah. So I like literally canceled my account before I uploaded anything. So I was pretty adamant that I wasn't going to make one. Of course, I pulled it in May. But I because at this point where everybody owns everything for all those social media sites. But um, so I ended up doing Twitter first. So I, I did Twitter in April. And I actually was pleasantly surprised about Twitter. I found that there was a lot more legit conversations and sharing of resources as opposed to like the showboating that happens on some of these other sites. Facebook is just like, here are my kids. Here's like all the vacations we went on. That's all it is. So that's I like if you go on the thread, that's literally all, all you see, or at least on mine because of the age I am. And then LinkedIn is just like, here's, uh, you know, my new job or my certificate or here's a poll. But Twitter, I feel like there's oh, actually like a community. And I might have just gotten lucky with the, the parts of Twitter that I got connected to because I put that out once and some troll like was like, you really think Twitter is the best social media? And this particular person had like 100,000 followers. So I thought it was kind of funny. I'm like, which one do you have more followers on? Like, what one's better for you? But I forget which, which uh you know, Twitter, he'd call, call himself a part of, but it wasn't tech Twitter or startup Twitter. So I was like, wait, I'm sorry for you guys. Like, like all his friends were also super bitter and like hated Twitter, but they were on there, right? Telling me that. So it was hilarious. But I've, I've just really enjoyed it. I jumped in on spaces. I, I, I joined like right around when spaces started. I went to one and the second one I went to, I just started talking. And then by like, I think the third one, I, I co-hosted with somebody and then I've just been until I got my permissions and then I started posting them. So that helped too, because I think I got to know people on like a deeper level by being able to do those. And so, yeah, I've, I've actually been pleasantly surprised by that as far as social media goes. Uh, but my startup's like general vision is to use AI to enhance people, not to replace them. And before I get into like what market we're getting into now, to give you a little bit of background about myself. Uh, my grandparents took custody of me when I was four. My grandfather worked for Apple. So that's what, how we ended up living in like both New Jersey and San Jose at some point. And when I was little, I used to go to the office with him like over the summers and just like just hang out with everybody because I would literally just like go from one like cubicle to another making people pictures for their their cubicles and you know I was the boss's granddaughter so everybody was like oh here you go wait you like you want some more highlighters like um so I thought it was a blast but I also got my first computer when I was four and to me it was always fun like I had this one game where I could it was like a this maze and in order to unlock the next door, you'd have to solve math problems. But I was like, but I'm going through a maze. Like, I didn't realize I was like doing math. And so I, computers have always been part of my life. And 
on the other hand, though, when I went to the office with him, the only females that were really that I like remember vividly like being there because we used to have parties like at our house every year. So at least till my like late teens, I, I definitely know like the team pretty well. And all of the females were secretaries. So I didn't see like a big presence in like in other positions. Not like I said, again, there may have been other people there that maybe weren't part of our close circle. But so growing up, my grandfather had like seven different businesses at some different points in time. But uh, my grandparents were very adamant that I just get degrees, like just go to school and earn degrees. So I did that. And I still just felt like I wasn't ever really doing what I wanted to. I kind of felt lost with different careers. I was working in emergency rooms for about seven years. And I, again, I just didn't feel like fulfilled. So I've always loved technology. I started making websites when I was like 11 and I used them in my honors thesis. I I used some code, like I created my own program to validate some of the self survey measures, but it, it was always, again, a hobby for me, but I did always also kind of not appreciate how disconnected it made people and how it could be actually used negatively with things like certain algorithms that we use to get people kind of addicted to negative behaviors. And so, you know, it's always been a thought of mine, like, well, we know so much about human psychology. Why are we using these for negative purposes? And why can't we use some of the things that we know to make people engage in healthier behaviors? Um, So the first use case for uh, Motivate You is to sell to fitness professionals and gym owners the ability to be competitive against direct-to-consumer products like Peloton, Mirror, and Tempo. All of those have different aspects that allow people to get data back. Mirror, for example, is a life-size mirror. You stand in front of it and you exercise with a bot and it tells you if you're doing your exercise correctly or not. Um, all of those also require hardware for the ones that actually give you like decent data. Otherwise, you're just basically streaming a YouTube video or an exercise video, which to me is very much like what I did in the 90s when I popped my grandfather's Tybo videos in the VHS. Right? Like, it's fun to watch the video, but you don't get any feedback about how you're doing. And so our product has a motion tracker that synchronizes to the trainer in real time so that the consumer at home can tell if they're doing the exercises correctly or not. And the trainer can know who to focus on. So we have like a traffic light signal type thing where it's either red, yellow, or green. And so if somebody's redlining, then the trainer knows that that might be somebody they need to provide like specific instructions to, as opposed to trying to look at like 30 tiles on a video conference and know who needs the help at that point. And so with that, though, we could obviously offer just a software version of Mirror and say, hey, we're just going to sell directly to consumers because they don't have to buy a $1,500 Mirror anymore, find space to fit it. But that removes the human component. And it's very clear that people need to still be connected to others. So there's a study done that showed that the greatest predictor of longevity past the age of 100 was social connections and interpersonal connections. It was like over 20% higher than even exercise or healthy weight. So we can't just get people in shape. We also need to make sure that people are connected to a community and to others. So by selling to the fitness professionals, we allow people to still have that connection to their trainer. And they can also use this in the hybrid format. They can actually still track themselves in a live class 
And so they can also connect to other people in the classes that they go to. So we're not saying people have to work out at home. We just want them to be able to work out at home and have that option and that flexibility of coming in and out of the gym. Because if you have kids, if you live in a place with traffic, if you work a lot, the transportation to the gym itself can usually be twice, if not three times as much as the class in terms of the time you're wasting. So there's this balance that people are always trying to strike. And so we want it to be able to, you know, meet people where they're at, but also make sure that people realize like, hey, you still need the human component. And, it, and the more and more people we interviewed, more and more people said that was what they were missing. That people did want the human aspect in terms of how they were training and, and exercising. And people who are using some of those other products have kind of burned out on them. I think people are seeing that too with like, as some of the cities are lifting some of the pandemic restrictions, people are just like flocking to anywhere where there's other human beings so that they can interact. Can I just say that's really, really brilliant. Um, you know, it's, it's a very, very smart twist to what, you know, you'd normally see with workout applications or, you know, trying to work out at home. So it has that human element to it while still being incredibly convenient. And it's something, to be honest, I never thought of, you know, even though for me, for example, in Bahrain, the, the roads are quite congested. So just going to a, a close by gym would still take me at best, maybe 30 minutes. So having something like that at hand where I'm at the office for 12 hours a day, you know, it's going to be quite convenient where I do have time, perhaps maybe during my lunch break or maybe just after work to work out, but maybe not enough time just to make it to the gym or to the certain sessions. So. Yeah. So after I had kids, I tried to go back to the gym because when I went back to, so I got my master's degree and then I went back for another undergraduate degree. And while I did that, I taught um, yoga and was a personal trainer. So I've always known that like fitness and working out was important. So after I had my second son, I tried to go back to the gym with like the traffic. It was 45 minutes one way getting them set up in the daycare that they had there. They hated the daycare. <laughs> the class itself was only a 40-minute class. So it took me over two hours just to go to a 40-minute class. And I loved the class. I loved having other people there. They're also like, we can't wait to see you to next week. I ended up not coming back because both my kids were like, we're not coming here. And I was like, well, is it worth it to make them miserable? Because they also cried like all the way home that, you know, the whole 45 minutes home. But like having somebody say too, like, I'll see you next week. That accountability is really important. And you can have a bot say it all you want. Like, hey, ding, ding, you're supposed to do this. But it's very easy to like push a button and like dismiss that alert. So, and you know, even though I like anytime, even pre-COVID during like flu season, I pretty much would avoid super congested areas. But it's nice to know that if I can, if I have some kind of break or where things aren't super busy, that I could still go, you know, into a gym if I'm connected to one that's local to me. And that option is there. And then if I can't the next week, like if I went to that first class like that I had gone to, that the next week, I didn't just have to tell, like just not show up and just ghost them. I could have joined in through my app and still had that live trainer and still be getting that feedback that I would have gotten if I was there in person. So I think that that flexibility is also really important. So even if people don't maybe use it the in-person as much as they think they might, knowing that you can, I think is, is critical because the idea that we are completely cut off from others too and um, that we, we can't go in or that you have to then start up a whole nother membership is I think also really daunting to people. 
um, it just creates like another point of friction. But we also do have like things built into the app so that you can encourage like other people that are in the classes that you're in. And you could decide like how much you share with them. We don't do what some some other um, apps do in that like you have to pick your privacy things and then we just set everything to anytime we change something we default it at we're just going to share all your stuff. Uh, we have it very clear at the beginning what each of the privacy options mean and then you can always go ahead and change them if, if you want to. I think that's that's something that people are becoming more aware of too. There's ways for companies to make money and still do what's right for humanity and I don't know why it's taken so long for there to be more of like a, a cry for this, but it's definitely, I think, well overdue. Unfortunately, there's still sometimes they'll talk to people and they'll be like, but why? Like, why just not make money? And that breaks my heart. But I know there's other people who are starting startups that will kind of check in and see which companies are doing things the right way, sustainably, or, you know, depending on what their their focus is. And I think that's like a new wave that's coming, especially with Gen Z. And that makes me really hopeful for the future. I love the ambition. It's just really, really awesome. And you really took it and ran with it. Can you tell us a bit about your first paying customer and what that was like? And I think you've got the mix of, you know, entrepreneurship with a really interesting background and also software, because I think software is such a black box for a lot of people. And I know there's a lot of like, you know, no code and this kind of stuff, but I think it's still not yet accessible to a lot of people. So maybe some tips for people who aren't, you know, with the same software background on how to get into that. Yeah. So um, the initial thought was that we were just going to sell directly to businesses. But after I joined Twitter, like the month or two after we were getting about 58% of our traffic from Twitter. And so people were asking me why there wasn't like an option for like an end user, like a consumer just to join directly. And so I realized that I could, aside from that, those live classes offer other features for people to join. So we did like a mock page, saw how much interest there was. In like 24 hours, we had over 390 clicks. So then I made a sign up page from there. But it's still, first of all, it's, it's, it hasn't launched yet, that part. It also still urges people to connect to, to a, a tra- trainer or one of the gyms that we have existing on the platform. But from this, I... Um, met a lot of people who were interested in just getting started right away before we had our gyms onboarded. And I pushed most people back saying they had to wait, but there was one woman in particular who pulled on my heartstrings and her name is Andrea and she's always raving about us on Twitter. So she's not hard to find who, which Andrea that is. And um, she had had a lot of like ups and downs in terms of her training experiences. And she'd been using other apps in the meantime that just were not cutting it in a lot of ways. And so I actually started training her. So she actually ended up being our first customer overall. And she's just been such a cheerleader for the company. So I actually definitely am happy I, I did that because it, it reminded me of why I'm doing this in the first place. And it's just been really reinforcing. In terms of like how to get started. So I think because, like I said, I, you know, a female growing up that played a lot of on computers and did things and kind of thought it was a hobby. I didn't ever really think of myself as a developer. I didn't know there was such thing as self-taught developers either until I joined Twitter. I know that sounds crazy, but I'm not kidding. Um, So I never even thought of calling myself one. But 
I think there's like a lot of imposter syndrome for people too who play around with, with stuff and they feel like maybe they can't do something. But from when I started messing around like 25 years ago to till now, there's a lot more like in between like low code stuff too. So for Arab in particular, it would be pretty impossible to get far with that. But I do know that for many people, software products, and even some people I know who have had multiple companies, they've decided to do no code or low code for their MVP. So I think that's a good way if you have like a strong business background, if you can do something like a drag and drop even to prove out what you're trying to do. But before you even do that, what I did, the very first thing I did was just talk to business owners in the fitness industry to see if they would even be interested in this. So I didn't tell them what I was doing exactly. I just asked them what their problems were, what their concerns were for the future. Now, I started this company in August of 2020. So I was doing these interviews like the last week of July. So it was like COVID time, like the first wave. And so there was a lot of concerns that people had about how to keep their businesses afloat. And that, that was when the idea of community became clear to me how strong that was for people. And then I asked them, well, what are you using as an interim solution? How do those solutions not solve your problem? And then I said, I'm working on something. Would you be interested in me following up with you? And I didn't tell anybody it was what my idea was at that point. So validating from the standpoint of you don't even have to speak about your idea is something that a lot of people don't realize is possible. But if you actually talk about your idea too early, you can steer people in terms of even like unknowingly steer people into saying or reinforcing what you want to hear. So I think especially if you're going to maybe try to learn a new tool, because even the low code or no codes, you still have to learn a little bit. It's kind of like if you had never been on Word or Excel, you know, the first time you go on, you're not going to just automatically start using it in a couple minutes. You're going to have to figure out where everything is and how to do whatever it is that you're, you're trying to do. Of course, like you could just start typing with Word, but then if you're, you know, wanting to like add a table or something, you're clearly going to have to click on a lot of stuff till you find where that's located, right? So just like the same thing with the low-code tools, there's definitely, a lot of them are very intuitive, but you're definitely going to have to have some patience and put some time aside. So before you even do that, spending time and money, it's because time is money, right? You're going to not be able to maybe do something else that maybe would earn money if you're taking out the time to do this. It's important to make sure that there's a market for whatever it is you're trying to build. And then when it gets tough, you can remind yourself why you're doing it and that on the other side, there are people who are interested so that it's not going to just be that you're, you're wrapping this all up and then kind of end up with something that uh, is maybe just a product for yourself. So I think that, that a lot of people talk about the why. Um, there's a book too even that's just, I think, called uh, Find Your Why or something to that effect. But knowing why you're doing it, aside from the problem that you're solving, narrowly, like in terms of your broader picture, like wanting to increase connectivity and interaction among people, is, you know, is mine, is, is using software and computer tools in a way to positively affect humanity. So thinking about those bigger things, too, is really helpful for when you're trying to, to learn something new. And then if you can get far along enough that people see that there's a need there, then you can bring on other people. So I actually had connected to somebody on my grandfather's team at Apple that he managed 30 years ago, back when I first started my LinkedIn account. And so I hadn't talked to this one person in like 
since I was 15. Um, and my grandfather passed away about eight years ago now. So he was my, it's not like I reached out to him. Um, I reached out to this connection separately and I said, Hey, I don't know if you remember me, but I used to work for my grandfather, Apple, and I have this, this idea and, uh, I want to run it by you. And so I started with that. So after I had already validated the market, of course, he asked me those questions and then he said he wanted to be involved on the team. And I said, do you know any good developers that you think would want to be involved? So he found a developer that used to work at Apple because this person was in marketing and partnerships. And that kind of, it kind of went from there because I had done my homework and I had done all the steps I could to the point where I needed to bring on people to help me. So then it was easy for them to join on because it wasn't something I just was thinking about for a day. And then, you know, I want them to now waste their time with me. So I think you can definitely find people to help with the parts that you're not proficient in, because I knew that if I wanted to, I could build something, but it would take me years compared to somebody else who does this regularly that could do it in months. So that's where I, I decided to reach out. But I also continued through the whole process to do a lot of the research in terms of what we were going to use. I filed the patent for the product. And then I um, probably maybe, maybe 10, five, maybe probably at this point, 5% of the code is written by me. At some point it was about 10, but I've definitely backed off more now that I've been really plunging into sales. So, but again, like I could not do it as quickly or as well as other people. So doing as much as you can, kind of knowing a little bit about everything part of the business being able to answer those questions to when you find experts who are willing to come on, I think is, you know, you don't have to do it alone, but in order to get people to buy in on it, you really have to know what you're talking about. Absolutely brilliant stuff. I love it. And it's that saying I heard, which is do enough to be dangerous. So you mix the whole purpose with, and you know what? I think a common thread I hear a lot is to test your idea. And, you know, you hit it on the head, which is, you don't need millions of dollars to get a business started and you don't have to have everything figured out. So I really you know, applaud you for that. And I heard that whole sign up approach and just to test and see what the need is, I think is super brilliant. And it's obviously worked. It's obviously took the idea to the testing. And I think for people listening, just how do you navigate in this sea of abundance of choices that could be very overwhelming, I find, you know, with how to manage your time. And you're clearly very busy and organized as well. So I think it's very inspiring to anyone listening who wants to take, you know, the side idea and actually turn it into something. So that's really awesome. Yeah, I just want to add as well with the part with where you can delegate, you know, other tasks to people. I had a conversation with my brother once and one thing led to another in terms of talking about business and delegation. And I was asking him because he has some experience in programming. If, if I were ever starting a website or an application and if he can maybe pitch in and help me. And he said, you know, why would you do that? Why don't you focus on the product itself and delegate people? Because just like you said, the time spent trying just to learn things and maybe trying to build the application or your idea and then troubleshooting all the stuff will take way longer than just in terms of value, in terms of money and time compared to me hiring someone or delegating someone to do the job with much more experience than I did. So this is a prime example of that. So while you were telling your story, 
I was definitely, I can definitely relate to that in the sense of that's incredibly smart. And even though it sounds quite simple and straightforward, it is the right thing to do. And sometimes what is common sense might not be so common as they say. So yeah, brilliant stuff. I think um, one thing though you do have to do is make sure you push it as far as you can before you bring other people on. So I think everybody's done this before and I did it as well. Like I tried to bring on somebody too early to write the copy. And I think I was at like the six month mark and I knew somebody who did it and they worked at like a very big agency and then they started their own. So they're offering like, you know, very good prices, but she had never worked with software. And though she tried her hardest, I spent like over 40 hours just going back and forth and fixing and written. I'm just like, I'm basically just writing everything myself anyway. Because it's it's really difficult for somebody else to get all the stuff that's in your head out. And so I think you do almost have to take on way too much in the beginning. And there's no good there's no good way around that. Because again, you have to kind of make it clear enough for other people to join in. But I think knowing that you have to take each thing to a certain point and then you can have that help also helps you to maybe take it past the point where it's like slightly uncomfortable because you're like, okay. You know, if I get 10% further along, then I can say to somebody, look, I did X, Y, Z. I validated this and that. Here's something viable. Because in the very beginning, too, most of the people you bring on are going to do it for equity. And most of the people you bring on are going to be part time. And so if they don't believe in the mission and the vision and the viability of the idea, and you can't prove out that you've at least gotten somewhere with it. Again, it's going to be hard to convince those people to come on unless you have tons of money. But then even if you do have a lot of money and you bring people on too early, like I wasn't paying my friend a lot, but I brought her on too early. And so it was like the ideas weren't clear enough in my own head. Like I wasn't able to verbalize it well enough for her to then recreate viable copy. And because the product wasn't done at that point, she couldn't see it and test it and try it. And so she wasn't quite clear on what it was either. Um, I, we do some pot, um, some Twitter spaces on this. I think it's one of those things that I've heard. It, you have to hold on to the longest is writing the copy as a founder. Um, but it's one of those things that people also usually try to get rid of too early. Like it's a very common one that people try to outsource right away. But it's uh, it's super tricky to do that effectively. Yeah. I see you're doing the all things startup Twitter space every Tuesday at three. I'm going to have to join in one time because I love the brainstorming and the spontaneity of anything, just ideas. And this was always what attracted me to tech. So I've got a sales background. I did philosophy in school. I always liked tech. So I was very similar. I, around five years old, uh, my dad spent all the money you could on a computer. And I think it was like $1,500 Canadian at the time. And of course, you know, as you know, back then, six months later, it's out of date. And we had, I think, four gigs on a hard drive for like 12 years or something. So it's just the dabbling and the exploratory nature. But what makes, I think, all of this really exciting to me is that there's, you know, some humility in learning. And it doesn't matter really where you went to school. It's not about, as you said earlier, like something like a LinkedIn is about showing off. But there's something about tech that just keeps bringing me back because it really does improve the world. And when you talk to people like yourself who have a, you know, a, a mission and are kind of exploring as you go along and really progressing, it's just super inspiring and it gets me excited about life. So that's why I like asking that question because 
you know, inadvertently, I just get really wrapped up in these conversations and it just pumps me up. So I really, really appreciate you coming on. Um, can we talk a little bit about, you know, the whole equity thing? I don't know how much you're comfortable sharing, but someone who hits the MVP, hits their paying customer and wants to bring on talent. So is there like a kind of a model in terms of equity? Do you throw, I've heard the whole, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but companies raise seed rounds and then they bring on investors slash people who know a space and can actually help fuel it, money's fuel. But how do you handle the whole talent aspect and the human capital? And how do you incentivize someone to join? So I actually use a a modification of buffers material and they have been remote from the start. I think they're about year seven or eight now, but they have a very transparent salary and equity documents. And then also like a couple years ago, they came out with different tracks. So like if you want to be a software developer, but you don't want to ever go into management, like how do you track through the company? And so I've modified their documents. And the cool thing is that they release their, like, so when they were, I think the first one they put out was like 2013-ish. And they didn't then just save over it. Then when they changed their model in 2015, they put out a new one. And so right now there's like four different models they've had, which is really great because then I could say, okay, like for their first model, that's like where we're at now. So all I have to do is adjust it for inflation. But other than that, like this is like what a startup at this stage can handle in terms of like, you know, being able to make this work for the salaries. So I use their, like I said, I used it and then I just modified it with inflation. And then for the their tracks, I even built that in. So the cool thing about their tracks is like in a startup, you don't have a lot of positions. You know, there's not like hundreds and thousands of jobs. So somebody could technically get stuck like in a position for a while. But what if they're improving their skills and doing a lot more things, but there's not a job above them for them to move into, right? So that might be discouraging to them. And then they might say jump into another company that has that position. So the way this, their tracks work is, and that what we've modified to do the same is that you can still get salary bumps and you can get increases in your status without there being a position available. So there's like, I think, five boxes that you can move into without actually changing job titles. And those are not required to have a different job title to move forward. So you get increases in salary, but it's also clear that you're your role is technically growing, that you're, you're building more skills. And those are clearly like outlined. Um, so I really like that because I think it's, it makes it fair for the, for first of all, like everybody knows how everybody's getting paid. There's no like illusion there. Same thing for the equity. They have the equity calculator. So everybody's clear on that. And then people know how they can grow and what they need to do to grow to the next salary bump. And then also like when another position comes what they need to do, what skills they need to have in order to then get that position should one open. That's really brilliant because, you know, I've had conversations with friends of mine and it's always about, you know, someone who's very like new to the space will always talk about free product. So NDAs, they'll talk about, you know, protecting ideas and they'll talk about this imaginary bag of millions of dollars that they're going to make. But there seems to be a, a disconnect between building and doing and all this kind of stuff. So I really, you know, admire the fact that you got that done. But number two, 
Thanks for sharing that because I never heard of this equity model before. So it's definitely something interesting for our listeners to research. And it's transparent, which is huge because besides the fact that people like, I think the, what gets people further along is the, the drive and the purpose as opposed to the carrot of money, because although everyone wants to do better in life, I think it's short-sighted and, you know, misses the point. A lot of people like, you know, you talked about human psychology. I find that, you know, whether it's said or not, I think the idea of money is actually a barrier to doing well in life because people just throw entitlement or like, it's my idea. I want to get paid and without actually building. So it's an interesting conversation because the absurdity of building a company without knowing if it'll succeed. And also, how do you value your time? You talked about opportunity cost and, you know, take the busiest life, which is most people's lives. And I think I'm pretty similar. I always said I'd hate to have, I'd be really depressed if I had the same job for 20 years. So I have a little bit of that curiosity and that, you know, tinkering with side businesses, but I'm not at the five team and team kind of startup level. Um, I've got a couple of contractors in my very non-software businesses, but I think it's it's interesting. So, I mean, how important is the mission and do you go to hire people, the actual type of person you bring on board? Is it through networks you have, as you said, you know, with that Apple connection or how do you vet someone new? Is it through Twitter? Is it through LinkedIn, Indeed? And how do you even pitch them that joining you is a good idea? I was going to say other companies that you've had, I think are still really important. So this is my first tech startup, but I had a solo prop and then a a brick and mortar and then a nonprofit that was technically also tech. But all of those, I think, really build up the skills and then make other steps that you have to do for a startup that much easier. Not that it's easy, but it's easier because you've gone through like, you know, even just figuring out how to get employees on and like what's the legal requirements for doing that and you know what paperwork do you have to have in order to have a business open all of those things are now stuff that you don't have to learn how to do so that definitely like reduces some of the time aspect there so for our principals for our team again like i said we have 10 of them i don't remember them off the top of my head but uh thirst for knowledge like being willing to ask questions growth mindset being able to identify and challenge biases self-care, taking care of oneself, like understanding that trying to push too hard will basically, you'll end up in the same place anyway. So you have to be able to um, be compassionate towards yourself. Let's see, that's probably only about five. But yeah, there's 10 altogether. It doesn't help that I'm feeling a little bit under the weather either to try to to remember what they are because I started like in the middle and then got lost from there. But the last one is like innovate and, and iterate, being able to think outside the box. That's totally fine. It's um yeah, it's it's important, I guess, to have both transparency and identity because you know, I've heard that as we move into the I think Naval was a huge fan of this kind of thinking, which is modern society is expression of the individual and not this corporate number. And, you know, I think the mechanics of getting five people in sync versus five thousand is totally different. And it makes a lot of sense to if you have the unit of one, which is yourself and the idea and the ambition, how do you not clone, but synchronize yourself with someone else who is in your network or you hire on? And it makes perfect sense to have, you know, a string of values. And so there is clarity about how to think. And, you know, there've been often people who talk about 
productivity and how much of your eight hour workday is actually productive. And I think a lot of even common retail businesses don't have that synchronicity because, you know, I always joke that the car business, um, which where I'm from is you learn from the person next to you and, you know, who you surround yourself with is not always by choice as you get hired on. And the environment is a mix of top down. And, and the worst part is, I think sometimes in organizations, you'll find that you know, your direct boss is almost acting out of fear or this disconnect of what they think the right answer is. And, you know, it doesn't really synchronize you in the right way where productivity is highest or things are getting done. And it's almost a waste of time and resources, which is why I think small companies that shouldn't exist do thrive and do grow. And, you know, it's very interesting to see behind the curtain on the other side. And I love talking about that. So, you know, as we wrap up here, Jen, can you tell us a bit about the whole WeFunder thing. It looks like you're raising money and well on your way. So congrats. What made you go to WeFunder? What are your next steps when you hit those milestones? Yeah. So actually you made me unlock two of the other ones. Transparency, obviously, like I was talking about and authenticity. So I think, you know, we all have to be open and honest with each other, especially on small teams, but in any, any team, right. In order to make progress. So in July on one day was when we did that, that experiment. We then did a sign-up sheet. So we had about 60 hours. We had gotten over 500 signups for the consumer app. So the day we launched that was the same day that uh, a producer from CNBC came to me and asked if we would like to be on a show. That was just like, I just got a message. I hadn't like set up a meeting yet. And then same thing with, I got reached out to but someone on the team for WeFunder. And so it all just came together in a way that like, okay, we are going to have a consumer side to this also. We are going to be on television. And so doing something like a community raise just clicked. So I think it was just the timing of it. And then because at that point we were pre-revenue, but now I was starting to think as I, as I ended up having these meetings, if we're going to be airing on a show that they, um, has like 600 million people in the audience, we get an influx of demand. How are we going to meet that? So there's certain points in time where it's not ideal to get VC funding. And at that point, we were in that space where we had um, proven out the technology, but we hadn't started onboarding um, businesses yet because we were still doing like the front end, like making the UI usable. And so usually at that point, you'll get not an ideal valuation where you can actually get technically get one sometimes higher if you start before you've proven the product. And or after you start getting revenue is actually the ideal time to start taking on VC money. But that gray area in between a lot of the times when you meet with investors, they'll be like, oh, just call me back in a couple months after you launch, <laughs> you know, because it's too close for them to take that, that gamble. And they know they'll, there'll be a, a pushback between what their value is for the company and what you think it is. So I had already known that we weren't going to raise a traditional round then. But then when I found out and we decided we were going to go onto the show, that's where I got in a pickle where I was like, okay, well, how are we going to, you know, like we need at least a couple of core team members that are on full time. Because at that point, everybody was part time so that we can handle this influx. And so that's where since we Thunder came along, it just seems like the best move to make. And so that's how that that went. I definitely didn't make the decision quickly, though. It took a while for me to decide that's what I was going to do. And I kind of went back and forth on it a few times. Um, but we ended up launching our WeFunder campaign September 27th. And we are currently, I think, a little bit, I haven't checked today, but 
We're a little bit over 68,000 the last time I checked for that out of 250. Does that feel like checking the price of Bitcoin, by the way? Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I probably only check Bitcoin like when somebody says something on Twitter now. <laughs> yeah, I try to check this a little bit more often because one thing I don't like is if somebody tells me they gave and I didn't see first and get to thank them before they said, hey, you know, and some people will say something like right away. So it's like impossible to catch it. But I do try to catch it so I can thank people as soon as possible. But we also uh, have so for October. So we launched the enterprise app. October 12th, and we um, closed $2,650 in revenue for October, and we have $33,000 in signed contracts. So for the first week in November, we already exceeded our entire month of October um, for actual revenue closed. So hopefully that will keep going up, but it's taken definitely some time away from the fundraising. There's this terrible balancing act as a founder where you can literally only do so many things at a time. And so like balancing the sales and the fundraising has definitely been uh, interesting. Let's put it that way. Right on. Do you mind me asking a bit about the model? So is it recurring revenue? Is this like a monthly subscription for enterprise? It sounds like the enterprise is, you know, well on its way. So is that the expectation that someone who has a gym might pay a monthly fee for this? Yeah, so for both the consumer and the gyms, we have it set up to be a per user per monthly fee. And so the consumers have like three levels. There's a free and then like two other levels. And then for the gyms, they pay for one price for a trainer, a different price for an admin because we have this like extra features that admins can see in order to track who's doing well. And then they pay per user after they exceed a certain number of users too. So there's yeah. basically three tiers on both the consumer and the business side. Yeah, I think I'm going to draw an analogy here, which, you know, like if you think of Square, the company that started swiping, I think Jack Dorsey, founder of Twitter, took people's um, investors' debit cards and just swiped money on his iPhone. And that was his pitch, which was brilliant because no one had, you know, that capability before. And it's amazing how, let's say, I don't know if it's like a decade later, you know, he's pivoted obviously to crypto, but I think, you know, a couple of years ago, it was about empowering coffee shops and saying, hey, you actually sell 50 teas around this time. And, you know, it gives them good insight and analytics into what sells, what doesn't. It really empowers small businesses to do well and to prioritize anything from staffing to peak demand and products and et cetera, et cetera. So this is just kind of hitting me as a light bulb, which is, Imagine what fitness gym owners are going to be able to do with this, which is, as you talked about things like admin, I'm assuming there's some type of analytics. And even if it's in-house and not like a work from home. So number one is like, the, I've never owned a gym, but I've always heard that the stat was like, okay, two or 5% of people actually use their membership. So I'm guessing there's a cohort of 50% or something that don't even go. They just pay monthly because they feel you know guilty for not having a gym membership. And then you've got that people who go, let's say once a year. And I think besides capacity challenges, which is you don't want everyone going at once, almost like airline seat booking, I think the beauty of this whole model is that you're really going to change a lot of lives by encouraging the gym to say, okay, how do we help every person on their own level? It's almost like individual tutoring, right? So you can take people who are plateauing. And, you know, I took my background is, I guess, high school gym class and you know, I like to think I knew what I was doing after three or six months of training. And I'm very much one of those people who 
go for three weeks and then stop going for a long time. So, you know, I think at all skill levels, if you can give people analytics into how they're doing, the gym can run promotions and say, come for a free class. We see you haven't been in a while. Or, you know, how do you do like a one-on-one specialized training without having, you know, a client having to throw a crazy amount of money at the wall, which I think is what stops a lot of people from personal trainers. Yeah. So we, um, we have like NLP bots to help the trainers not have to like hand write every single message. And then we're working on making it have different dialects. So like if you write an email, lots of times what comes up is like, thank you. Sounds good. It's like very generic messaging. So we're trying to put in like different slang terms that people use, like, you know, in California, they might use rad, you know, and, you know, different cities, there'll be different dialects and things that people will say. So that's what we're working on now is like making it sound more personalized. And obviously, trainers can always overwrite it, but it's hard to keep up with everybody. The other thing is 99.9, even the gyms that are charging people $300 a month, are using like clipboards. So they just write down the notes on when a client comes and they throw it in a drawer nobody's ever analyzing that. And the problem is that there's a lot of turnover with trainers. So if somebody gets assessed at being at a moderate fitness level, and then they change trainers, the next trainer might actually think that they're doing more poorly. But it's just that their subjective way of assessing a person is different. So the same um, technology we use for the live classes, we use to get people's baselines and their reassessments. But then this also allows the admins to look at all the data and say, oh, like this trainer is actually doing well, regardless of the fact of what class they teach or what type of client they teach. Because sometimes it looks like you have a really good trainer, but it just might be that they have stellar clients or it's that particular class that draws in a particular type of client. So if we like hold certain things constant, can we also see like what trainers like are stars and which ones should you really like be reinforcing and giving bonuses to? So both on like the consumer side, making sure that their data is clean and useful and then being able to keep up and messaging those clients. And then also for the admins to be able to like properly reward the trainers that are actually doing like a standout job. That is awesome. I really love, you know, how well thought out this is. And I'm just getting super excited about all the good info. So really appreciate you coming on. As we wrap up here, is the end goal of WeFunder to launch the consumer side or is the goal to maybe grow enterprise for the next 12, 18 months till you have a war chest of capital and then maybe launch that consumer side of it? So we're about 40 hours from wrapping up the consumer. So we will have that out because our goal is to get it out before we go on, um, before we air on TV. We're going to be on a six minute spot in December. Um, I should be releasing the exact date soon, but it's a Saturday in December. And so our goal is to get that out before then. And because we have had revenue come on, I was actually able to bring some people on full time earlier than expected. Um, but the WeFunder closing will help give us a, you know, a buffer to be clear with that, um, with our burn rate that we can continue to, to bring on some of the other people that have contingency offers in place. So and that means like they have contingency offers that trigger at like different revenue or funding levels that then bring them from part time to full time. So I have several other people that are are waiting for that ability to come on full time. And I definitely think in terms of the scale that we're seeing already, we're going to need more people to troubleshoot, do customer success, fix bugs, get the next line of features that people want. There's there's not going to be a shortage of stuff to do. That's amazing. I'm really, really thankful you came on today. 
sharing an awesome story from getting lost to figuring your way out in the whole, you know, app space and launching a successful business. So really want to congratulate you with all your success so far. We look forward to definitely following along and you're welcome back anytime. We'd love to have you on again. Thank you. Thanks, Jen. It's been absolutely brilliant and can't wait to hear what's next to, to come for Motivate You. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. So with that said, let's wrap up today's episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of Methodical Millions, where you can better your future and better yourself. Thanks, everyone.